Uh, the easiest way to find it is go to the back and then go forward one book. So if you're in the book of Revelation, the one right before that is 3 John, and that's where we're going to start uh, this morning. That is where we will begin things as we, uh, as we dive into this book. Uh, uh, we're jumping into this new series, and, and it's called Real versus Fake, How to Know Your Faith is Real. Now, right off the, 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 the top here, that subtitle there uh, is one that, for some of you, that may be an oxymoron in there. That may be something that doesn't make any sense, because faith is one of those things that, that is that is there, it's a part of you, but so often we use the word faith, and when we say that, what we mean is something that we are uncertain of. But what we're going to be talking about, in, in other words, oh, well, I just, I, I don't know how it's going to work out. I don't know, I don't know the way that this all works together. I've just got faith that God's going to work through this. And, and basically what we mean is, I'm, I, I have I, I have faith, but there's no certainty to any talking about what it means to be all in for Jesus. That's how we started out this year. That's what we finished up last week, how, what it means to be all in for Jesus. And as we begin this new series, looking at the letters of John, as we begin this, I, I think what we're going to see is that John is laboring. He is laboring to help you see what it means to be all in for Jesus. This book is primarily written for Christians to tell them, hey, this is what it looks like to be a Christian. This is primarily what's going on. So if you're in here this morning, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. If you're in here this morning, you would say, I don't know if I am. I don't know if I'm not. I'm just kind of feeling this thing out. I came with a friend. Then that's great. We are glad that you are here. And I think you will learn a ton if you, if you keep coming back and you look at this first, second, and third, John, because you will be able to right up front say, what is a Christian anyway? And that, my friends, is a question that is deeply relevant for us this morning. This year, there will be many, many people that weigh in on what it means to be a Christian. Some will tell you that you can't be a Christian and focus and talk about race. Others will tell you that if you don't care about racial justice matters, then you're no Christian at all. Many will tell you that if you don't vote for Trump's re-election this year, then you're helping the cause of evil, and therefore, you can't be a Christian. That's already happening on the news. Others will tell you that if you vote for Trump at all, then everything you say is null and void because you're just a hypocrite, and you cannot be a Christian either. They will define Two things completely opposite against one another, and they will say, if you do one of these things, then you can't be a Christian. Others will, will tell you that if you use the wrong version of the Bible, then you can't be a Christian. Others will tell you if you dress the wrong way, then you can't be a Christian. If you listen to the wrong music, or if you play the wrong type of music in church, then you can't be a Christian. Who's right in this never-ending atmosphere of rushing to decide who is and who isn't a Christian and who is the worst person and, and who's worse than the other one, this never stops in our current culture. And there's no shortage of people to tell you that if you do X, Y, and Z, then you aren't like Jesus and you cannot be a Christian. And you will find people that are in complete opposition to one another. So how do we decide who is right? 
Does it even matter at all who is right? Should we all just mind our own business? Because this would be the other extreme that we would have in culture. One is to say, I'm going to tell you what a Christian is. I'm going to define a Christian this way. And then the other is going to tell you, I don't really care how you define a Christian. If you want to say you're a Christian, then that's fine. Be a Christian. We will just all mind our own business and then let God sort it out in the end. After all, with so many varied interpretations of Scripture, if there's so many other faiths, who are we to decide who can call themselves a Christian? Isn't that arrogant to pretend that we have the right interpretation of Scripture that can sort that out at all? This is every bit as popular, if not more popular, than the first option. I'll do my thing, you do your thing, and your thing is just as right as my thing. At least that's what we'll pretend that we'll say until your thing goes up against my thing and then my thing wins. That's the way that this works. This is the game that we play. And these questions are massive. They are important and they are kind of the foundation for how we think as people of God, for how we interact with those in the church and for with those outside of the church. And what we'll do is we'll dive into some hard, heart-level work over the next few weeks. So go ahead and turn to 3 John. If you're not there, 3 John is where we will start. We'll actually start at the end of these letters instead of the first, and I'll explain why that is here in just a few minutes. But we will start with 3 John, and the next week we'll look at 2 John, and then we will get to 1 John, which will make up the bulk of this series, and we'll see how long God has us here. John will help us answer all of these very important questions about what it means to be a Christian. He will help us sort through what a counterfeit Christian looks like. He will help us see what happens when a counterfeit Christian runs out of the strength to stop pretending. He will also help us ask some very, very hard questions, not so much about others, but about ourselves. Now I want to be clear as we begin this. John's purpose here is to help you primarily in assessing yourself, not others. Now, assessing others is okay. There's a part of being in the church that that is necessary. We'll talk about that we are saved. This comes up constantly. And I wonder how many of you, when you walk out of here this morning, I wonder how many of you, when you walked in here this morning, can say with absolute certainty, I'm saved. I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus. Nine out of ten of you? Seven out of ten of you? Three out of ten of you? Because after all, it depends on how much we press that word no, doesn't it? Like I can say, do you know you're a Christian? And I, I, I dare say many of you would give me a nod back and they would say, and you would say, yeah, I know, I know I'm a Christian. But then if I said, do you know you're a Christian? Just that little change of inflection of my voice is enough to make some of you doubt. It's enough to make some of you ask a question. It's enough to make some of you say, well, how can you really know? And then our default fallback is, I'm just doing my best and praying for mercy at the end. Just trying to be a good guy just trying to come to church. I'm just trying to do the things that I think God wants me to do and then hoping, hoping at the end that God's like, yeah, you know what? He did all right. We'll, we'll let him in. 
I long for everyone in this room to have unshakable certainty and joy in their salvation. To have a rock-solid confidence that you belong to Jesus. And if you can get to that place, and I'm convinced by what John tells us here that you can, you will be a far more powerful Christian and a far more joyful Christian if you can say that you know that you are saved. The flip side of that is I also wonder how many of you walk out of here on a Sunday morning and you are certain, if I were to ask, how do you, do you know you're a Christian? You would 100% say, absolutely, without a doubt, I'm saved and you're dead wrong. And my prayer for you is that by the time we get done with this series, you would know the difference in the two. That for those of you that are absolutely certain, but you're absolutely certain for the wrong reasons, that you would know that you don't know Jesus. And for those of you that aren't so sure, but you've put your faith and your trust in the right place, that you would have certainty. Do you see the the two things that I'm going for, for the, the tension in this series? We'll be fighting that tension the whole time. But that is my prayer out of this. That those of you that have built your definition of salvation and Christianity on completely unbiblical categories, maybe you think you're a Christian because you're a good person. Maybe you think you're a Christian because you've been baptized. Pray to prayer. Maybe you think you're a Christian because you lead a Bible study or just because you're you're here on a Sunday morning doing the Christian thing pray that God would shake you out of that and remove that false sense of security that you have. That's our goal as we go through this. You know, Jesus told us that this would happen, that there would be people that would have this false assurance. You remember in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many, many works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. My hope is that when we get to the end of this series, you can read that verse. We can all read that verse. We can appropriately stop and examine ourselves and we can know whether or not that verse is about us or not. Because if you're like me, when I read that verse so often, I get to this kind of heart check and then it just makes me say like, well, maybe I don't know. And I think God longs for more for us. The letters of John will help us to do all of these things if we have ears to hear and the patience to listen and apply. So let's get to work and let's kind of set the context first before we get into 3 John for what we'll be studying. Now, before we begin uh, uh, looking at this book, we've got some, some structural things that we've got to answer right off the bat. Because we've been in the book of Exodus all year last year, which took us forever and had all these chapters and all these stories and this massive scope of things that it covers. And then we get to 3 John, and it fits on half a page of my Bible. One is the book of Exodus. One is... 
3 John, we call it the book of 3 John. The two aren't anywhere equal in scope, yet we're going to study it just as it is a book of the Bible. How in the world does this happen? How do you get to this, this place where you can look at something and you can say, well, this is Scripture that we need to be able to read and we need to be able to draw something from, even though it's about five paragraphs long. Usually takes us months to cover a book of the Bible, sometimes over a year. But we're going to cover an entire book this morning, and I'm going to read an entire book of the Bible this morning, which I don't think I've ever done in a sermon, but we're going to give it a shot, and we're going to do it this morning. The short answer to that question, how does this end up being all packaged together here, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, are these like three standalone things, and, and it's just like John's greatest hits, and so we just kind of put them all in here together. This just happens to be one of those like, you know, one of those short ones, but he's got some that are a little bit longer. He's, he's got another book of the Bible, so this is like his second release. Like, how, how does this work? How do, how do we get here? The short answer is, we don't exactly know how these all came to be packaged together like this. We don't know the exact way that it happened, but we do know that it has always worked that way, that 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John were always packaged together. The early church always considered them together. It's not as though 1 John was written at this point, five years later, 2 John came along, and then 10 years later, 3 John came along. They were all always together, and they were always considered to be individual parts of a whole. Now, they're distinct enough that you can't just call them all one book. You can't just lump them all together. But this is how it is all, uh, it's all set up, that they all come together as a package. It's been hypothesized now, I'll tell you, this is, just, this is just a theory, but it's my working theory as we go throughout this, and if it turns out that we, we find out one of these days that theory is completely wrong, it's fine. It doesn't change the meaning of anything that we're going to study, but it's my working theory just to kind of help me categorize this stuff uh, and help me kind of pull some things out and, and give some structure to it. So my best guess is that First John is the, the bulk of what is to be delivered. It's a sermon that was to, be to, was to be delivered to at least this church that it was being written to, and maybe to several other churches. So it was a sermon to be delivered, and, and, uh, and John sent it to this church that John knew that would be near the city that he served. He was a minister. He lived near Ephesus, and this, this letter may have been uh, intended for, for one of those churches near and around Ephesus, perhaps even one of the ones that you read about in the book of Revelation. If you turn over just a couple of pages, there's several churches at the very beginning of the book of Revelation. John's writing here may be to one of those churches, and that's what First John serves as. And so if you... Uh, <clears throat> And then what you do is you look at what these other two uh, books are, are meant to serve, and uh, what would have happened is that this book would have been, or this sermon would have been delivered by a courier. Someone would have taken it. You're not going to trust it with the, uh, the, the U.S. Postal Service because they're, 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 running, they're running against you here. You're going to make sure it gets to uh, the people it's supposed to, so you're going to give it to a courier that you trust. That's what Third John is about. It is essentially recommending this courier that is delivering this and saying, he's a good dude. He's a, he's a good guy. Listen to what he has to say. He's not like some of these other guys. We'll see this here in just a second. But that's basically what 3 John is about. It's to, it's to, it's to commend Demetrius, the courier, and it's also to, to uh, warn against some other guys in the area. 
Second John is really just a letter that's meant to be read aloud to the church. So the first one goes to the elder of the church that says, hey, accept this from, from this courier, Demetrius. Second John is going to be read to the church, and we'll look at that next week, and it's going to say, here's some important things for you guys to know before we get started into this sermon. And then First John is to be read aloud as a sermon. So you see this? I'm working backwards because I think that's probably how these were intended to, to work. One is to commend, uh, one is to the elder, one is to the church, and one is a larger sermon meant to be read to everyone. So let's read all of Third John now and see what it has to say for us. Third John, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. So this is saying the elder is John to the other elder of this church, Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Beloved, I pray that, I, that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts to these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles, and therefore we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers of the truth. So he's basically just saying, great job caring for these Christian missionaries that are out, these that are going out and telling about the good news. Well done caring for them. That's exactly what we should be doing. Verse 9. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers, and also stops those who want to put them, and also stops those who want to, and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God, and whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I'd rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. That is the book of 3 John. So now you get a sense of the tone of the letter. You get a sense of kind of what John is trying to do. He's writing to Gaius in order to both warn and commend certain people to him. He wants to highlight the traveling missionaries that are there, in, that have been around in service to Christ. That's the, the second paragraph we, we stopped and looked at there. He wants to support them and urge support for them. This is much like what I talked about the last couple of weeks with our team going to Ecuador and with the team we're putting together going to New York. You're either going with one of these teams or you are supporting one of these teams. It is not, hey, they're going to do their thing. That's great. Awesome. Really proud of them. You are all a part of this mission trip. We are all a part of this mission trip. It's just whether or not you're getting on a plane and going with them or not. You are either sending or you are going. You are either supporting or you are actively out doing. Very much the same thing that we've talked about here. As soon as John can get these words out of his mouth, though, as soon as he is able to say, great job caring for these people, great job in supporting them, he's quick to call out this guy, Diotrephes. We don't know anything else about him other than what we read right here. We don't know anything else. But John makes it clear that this guy is up to no good. 
He refuses to support the mission these men, are on, these men are on, and he won't even allow others to do it either. Nobody's allowed to support these guys. He's got his little area. He's going to protect it, and he says, this is mine. Don't want these other guys around, and you're not allowed to support them either. Maybe this guy's a glory hound. Maybe this guy just wants his church to get really, really big. Maybe this guy just wants a big following behind him. We don't really know. We just know that he won't allow others to support these guys that are out, these traveling uh, itinerant missionaries and preachers. John wants to have none of it. He says, don't be like this guy. Don't imitate evil. Don't do what he has done. For you to do good is evidence that you are from God. But if you do like this other guy, it's evidence that you, don't really, that you haven't really come face to face with the same God that I have. If you just imitate the evil that he is doing, then that means you can't know God. But if you, are, if you are doing good and you are imitating good, then that tells me that you know God and you are from God. Some of this may be simple and straightforward to you. Some of it may be like, yeah, 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 I got that, I understand that. But for others, this may really push and challenge you. So I want to go back to the opening paragraph here, and I'll read it again, verses 3 and 4, because it will set the tone for us over the next couple of weeks and really the next couple of months. Verse 3, John says, For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear my children are walking in the truth. That is a sentence that a pastor writes right there. That is the depth of what every pastor I know, that is where their heart is. At least every decent pastor no greater joy than to hear that you are walking in the truth. I can't tell you how much that is at my core. I long for those moments. I love those moments when I get reports back from someone outside of this church that, that come back and it, and it says, man, that guy, that guy goes to your church. Man, he, he's great. He is wonderful. Man, I'm so, you're so lucky to have him. You're so lucky to have her. I can't believe that, that they must be great in your church because they are great here and they are great to us. It's no fun whenever you get those. It's like, that dude goes to your church? I wouldn't have thought that. I wouldn't really have thought he went to any church, as a matter of fact. Let me tell you these things that he's done to me. Let me tell you these things that he's done to us and to our family, to our company, whatever. Those are no fun. But the ones that you love, the ones that you like, are the ones like, man, this guy went out of his way for us. He did so many good things for us that he did not have to do. He wasn't just being a good businessman in what he was doing. He was actually caring for us and loving us. Man, those are great. Parents, don't you love those moments that you get, uh, that you long for with your kids? When, when they spend hours at school, hours away from your supervision, hours away from your discipline, and the report comes back, man, they're great. They're kind. They're hardworking. They're generous, they're helpful to classmates, they've gone above and beyond to care for others in class, even the kids that are most overlooked or perhaps even the most uh, dismissed. Man, your, your kid does a great job of caring for them, and that is what parents long to hear and what parents love to hear. So much more than the note that's like, you will be at the parent-teacher conference. It's coming up next Thursday, and we will discuss a discipline plan when you get here. Don't like that so much. Um, but that's how John feels here. But notice what he says. He doesn't just say that he loves to get a good report about how nice the people in church are. 
He, he, he doesn't say, man, I love to hear how nice you guys are to one another. He doesn't say that he loves to get a good report about how generous people are either. He's going to talk about that in the next paragraph, how, how generous Gaius and his, and his church have been. So that would have fit perfectly if he'd put that in there right there. Man, I love to hear whenever, whenever my children, whenever the other churches, whenever my congregation members, I love to hear when they are generous. That is a great thing. That would have been perfectly acceptable, perfectly good for John to say. But that is not what he says. He doesn't say, I love to hear whenever my, my, my people are good citizens. He doesn't say, I love to hear whenever my children are super patriotic. He doesn't say that. He says, I love to hear that they are walking in the truth. And that is a loaded word for John. And that doesn't mean that he just, he, he, he loves hearing whenever that the, the people are just honest, good folk. That's not what he's saying. When he says that, that he, he, he loves to hear that they're in the truth, he's not saying, man, I, I love hearing that you guys are just good folk that are honest, that tell the truth. That's not what he's talking about. What I want you to do is I want you to go back with me to a few other times that John explains to us this idea about truth. So turn with me over to John's gospel now. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Same guy writing this. Now, the book of John is not written to Christians, so to speak, in the same way that 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John is. It's written, it's written as an evangelist tool to try to explain who Jesus was. It's written to, as an eyewitness account to who Jesus was, and to what Jesus did. John chapter 18 is where we're going to be. I want to pull out three places where John talks about this idea of truth. Now, there's over 20 mentions of this word truth in his gospel. It happens a lot. I could have pulled out so many more, and we could have spent all kinds of time on it. I just want to pull out three. So John chapter 18, which by the way, if you're in a discipleship group, if you're uh, looking for something in your own personal study, if you want to jot something down there on your notes, this is the perfect thing to do in a discipleship group, to go through the book of John and look at different places where John brings out the word truth. And just talk about those. What, what does the word truth mean in the context of, of a few of these different things? Great thing for you to do in your groups. John chapter 18, verse 33. Jesus is on trial. This is just moments before his crucifixion. Some of the most famous verses in all of Scripture. He's on trial before Pilate, the, uh, the, the Roman authority in the area. And Pilate, entered, it says in verse 30, 33, So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this on your own accord, or did others say it, about, say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, What is truth? One of the most famous lines in all of Scripture. What is truth? Now, I don't think Pilate is making a philosophical statement here. I don't think he's asking a philosophical question for Jesus to ponder the nature of truth. I don't think that's what Pilate is doing. I think what Pilate is saying, truth is irrelevant in your current situation, Jesus. 
It doesn't matter what is true or what is a lie. It doesn't matter what these what what what, what the philosophical meaning is behind truth. It doesn't matter what you think about truth, Jesus. All that matters is these people have brought you here and you're about to be dead and I have a political problem on my hands. Truth is utterly irrelevant in this moment. What is truth? What does that have to do with anything here? Nonetheless, that question has echoed down through the the centuries. And it echoes in our ears today. This is one of those questions that gets posed at at the very beginning. You cannot fundamentally have a conversation about right and wrong, about ethical and evil, about good or bad, Christian or non-Christian, until you answer this question. You cannot say what is right or what is wrong, who is Christian, what is non-Christian, until you can say what is truth. You have to answer that question first. Most of our culture has come to this question that demands an answer if you are going to make any kind of authoritative claims about right and wrong, ethical, unethical, righteous, unrighteous, most of our culture has come and said no answer should be given. They say things like, how can we know? How can we decide who is right and who is wrong here? People are products of their environment. We can't judge them. People are born this way. We can't judge them. Do you see the the two things there? One, people are just products of their environment. Don't judge them for that. That's just how they were brought up. The other one says, people are just born that way. Don't judge them. That's just how they were born. Both come to the same conclusion. You can't make a claim to what is right or wrong because they have other factors that factor in. You have your truth. I have mine. Like I said before, that's fine until, of course, my truth runs into your truth and then we've got to figure out who's going to win. The prevailing wind of the culture is almost always what wins. And so truth becomes this ever-changing, loosely defined set of semi-morals that changes with the whim of the culture. Jesus stands in stark contrast to that ethos. He tells us instead that truth is certain, the truth is knowable, the truth is real, and that truth is something we must deal with. That statement is the height of arrogance to our culture. But it is the baseline of discipleship in following Jesus. Now, we don't know truth like this thing that makes us loud and arrogant and a proud show-off. We as Christians know truth like a man that is drowning and this life preserver is right there next to him that will keep it afloat because that truth is the only thing that matters in that moment, that that life preserver will save you. That's how truth works for the Christian. Do you see how that plays together there? It does no good for the guy who's drowning in the ocean with a life preserver right next to him to say, you know what, that would be arrogant for me to assume that's the only way I can, I can, I can live right now. I'm just going to keep treading water and hope that I make it. You see, truth works in certain ways that, that it, it demands us latch on to it and, to, uh, and for us to use it. This is what Jesus has in mind. 
The guy who's drowning doesn't dismiss the life preserver's ability to float as arrogant. He holds on to it for dear life. Turn to John chapter 14 now. John chapter 14. Jesus' teaching says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you're drowning, you don't care what they throw you so long as it will keep you alive and you grab on. And then when they pull you on board to the boat, they pull you on shore, you don't puff your chest out and talk about how good a swimmer you are. You celebrate what the lifesaver or what the life preserver had just done. It saved you. And this is how it works for us. This is what Jesus says he is for us. He is our our means to survival. He is the way, the truth, and the life. There are not multiple options around us for us to grab onto. There is one thing for us to grab onto, and that is the truth. Not one of many truths to grab onto. It is the truth, the only way to the Father, the only way to be saved. Truth isn't just what feels right at the whim of the culture. Truth isn't a set of moral choices defined as good and honest. Truth is a man. Truth is Jesus himself. So when John says that he has no greater joy than to hear his children are walking in the truth, what he means is he loves to see his people giving their lives to Jesus, trusting him as the only way, and following him. This is what he loves to see. His people walking in the truth, in love with Jesus, following him as the only way. He is truth. And John knows that when people do that, there is an abiding joy and certainty that follows. John chapter 8 now. Just a few more chapters back again. John chapter 8, verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed Him, If you abide in My word, you are truly My disciples, and you will know the truth. It's knowable. And the truth will set you free. And it's powerful. It is knowable and it is powerful. Friends, if we are going to call ourselves disciples of Jesus, then truth can't shift with the winds that blow around us. It has to be centered in Jesus himself. And that truth is both certain, knowable, it is powerful, and if you will, it is very, very narrow. He is the truth, and we cannot run from that. It is not humility to defer and to say, well, he's my truth. That is not humility. That is not a biblical worldview. He is the truth. 
So as we begin this series, the first fundamental fact that we have to establish is that we cannot be afraid to say whether something is true or it's not. Something is right or it's not. Something is evil or it's not. If we can't do that, then we cannot understand what it means to follow Jesus. Despite what our culture tells us, it is not wrong for us to do this. Now, how we do it, with arrogance or with humility, with love or with judgment and anger and hatred. Well, now that's a different sermon. We'll get to that one as we go throughout First John. But for now, all I want us to see is that all throughout Third John, what we see is John saying, this is good, this guy is good, these actions are good, these things that have been done are good. How you've cared for these people, these things are good. That is make, his actions are bad. In fact, his actions are evil. That is not just a judgment, that is a harsh judgment. It is a clear judgment. Despite what our culture says, it is not wrong to say this is wrong, this is right. This is evil. This is not evil. This is unrighteous. This is righteous. This is Christian. This is non-Christian. Now what we've got to figure out is how does the Bible inform those categories for us so that we divide that line in the right place. John is making clear lines and distinctions. And this is a pattern that is okay for us. For some of you this morning, that may be your takeaway it's okay to say that something is wrong. It's okay to make that judgment, to look at something and say, that is evil, it is wrong. For some of you, especially for those of you that are probably under the age of 30, you've probably been told most of your life, you can't make that call because you don't know enough about that person. What I want you to see is that the person you need to know about is Jesus and that's how you make that call. For some of you, though, your takeaway may, may be more personal, and you may need to come to the realization that you, in fact, could be wrong. That you, in fact, may, may have come to a conclusion that says, I am what I am, and it's fine. I'm fine. I don't define myself by what these religious Bible thumpers say. I don't define myself by what, what, what this person says I should be or what this pastor said I should be or what this person said I should be. I don't define myself by those things. I have my own truth. I have my own way of living. And so long as I'm true to myself, that is the ultimate truth. And what I'm here to tell you this morning is that is not the ultimate truth. Jesus is the ultimate truth. And Jesus said his disciples would know him. His disciples would hear him. And that in doing so, they would not find their ultimate truth, but they would be ultimately free. They would not find their ultimate truth, but they would find the truth. And that is what would set them free. And so what I'm telling you this morning is that for you, there is a distinct line between righteous and unrighteous. Holy and unholy. Saved and not. Christian and non. You can't just be whatever you were born to be, whatever that means. You can't just be a victim of your circumstance and your upbringing. 
all of those things play into us. But our standard of righteousness is not what feels good to us or what feels right to the culture. Our standard of righteousness is Jesus Christ himself and what he has called us to be. Do you know him like that? Do you know him as the dividing line for you in your own heart? Have you been confronted by Jesus in that way? This is how we have to begin. This is the foundation for a Christian worldview. This is what it means to be Christian and non-Christian. This is what will guide us as we go throughout the rest of these books. What is truth? It's Jesus himself. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning, we confess that all too often we are obsessed with ourselves. We are obsessed with our own needs, our own desires, our own wants, and we can so quickly and easily rationalize what it means to follow you in a way that just makes us feel good about ourselves. Father, this morning I pray that you would convict us of our arrogance in saying that we are truth. Give us the humility to say you are truth and you decide what is wrong and what is right, what is evil and wicked and what is righteous and holy. Not us. Father, give us the the strength and the courage to stand on that truth. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.